mic this morning. Give a warm, warm welcome. We are coming to the end of our authority series this morning. We uh, are ending it just at the right time, coming right into Good Friday and Easter together. We've been talking about your authority as a believer, and today we want to focus on how authority and how your authority works with your prayer life, and what it's like to not just to pray about things, but actually begin to see things brought about by your prayers. Uh, I'd like to have you look at it this way. The disciples did not ask Jesus, how do we preach, teach, deliver from demons, heal the sick, or perform miracles, but they did say this, teach us to pray. And the reason was because if they knew how to pray, they could do all those things. Because Jesus' ministry and his authority flowed out of his prayer life. He said, I do nothing of my own initiative. I only do what I see the Father doing. And so his connection in prayer is what created his messianic ministry and its effectiveness and impact. And the disciples said, if that's so with Jesus, it has to be so with us. Now, before we read a prayer from the Old Testament, from the Psalms, I want to, I want to just give you a framework uh, about the necessity of you understanding and me, of us understanding that we are weak, we are broken, we are, and this is a hard word to say, we're ignorant, we don't know enough, um, and the enemy knows these things about us, and he knows these places of weakness in our life, and the, one of the most important messages we had was on the message of putting on the full armor of God. Back in the 1600s, there was a, an English Puritan pastor by the name of William Gurnall. He wrote a three-volume book called The Christian in Full Armor. And the book is, is so powerful that one of the greatest English preachers of all time, C.H. Spurgeon actually read the book every year to refresh his memory of what Gurnall had, wrote, had written about the armor of God. And I want to start off this morning with a, a quote from him because I'd like for you to, I'd like for your, somewhat your conscience, your, your spirit to just be provoked this morning to rise up, not only to take your stand against the enemy, but to rise up in your prayer life. Listen to what he says. If you count on the strength of your own godly attributes, you will grow lax in your duties for Christ. Knowing you are weak keeps you from wandering too far from Him. When you see that your own cupboard is bare and everything you need is in His, you will go often to Him for supplies. But a soul who thinks he can take care of himself will say, I have plenty and to spare for a long time. Let the doubting soul pray. My faith is strong. Let the weak go to God for help. I can manage fine on my own. What a sad state of affairs to suppose that we no longer need the moment-by-moment moment sustaining grace of God. Not only does overestimating the strength of your own goodness make us shun God's help, it also makes us foolhardy. You who boast about your spirituality 
are likely to put yourselves in all kinds of dangerous situations, then brag that you can handle them. Does that not hit you? There are many people over the years who were even in leadership positions who told me they did not pray for their own needs. I hit them then. (laughs) Punched them in the nose. (laughs) I was so shocked by that. I was like, how can you ever get to the place where you don't realize how weak and helpless you are? How do you ever get to the place where you don't realize that God's supply is there for you? A friend of mine calls it the refrigerator privileges. And the reason he says is you may be a guest in someone's house, you may come for a party or for a meal or whatever, but you stay in the public places. But when your children come home, they get the refrigerator. And normally, if your kids are older and been away, you have in the refrigerator everything they like. You've made it special for them. And you can't wait to see the look on their face when they open the door and they know that their mother or their father have provided so specially for them. That's what prayer is. Prayer is your father's refrigerator where he's provided all the blessings and all, of the, all the things that you need, but it, he wants you to ask. You have not because you ask not. So today we want to look at one of, da- one of God's chosen service, servants, one of his choice servants, David. And David knew how to ask, and David knew how to get answers. I I challenge you with this today. I know I'm kind of in your face a little bit with this, but I, I'm doing it intentionally. I don't care how long you pray. I don't care how loud you pray. I don't care how passionate you are when you pray. I don't care how flowery or whatever else your prayers. You know what I care about? Do you get answers? Because in the, in the final analysis, if your prayers are not getting answers, you're not praying aright. I pastored a church, a little church in Atlanta that was a dying church, and they had been praying the same prayer list for 21 years. My first act as leader of the prayer meeting was to tear up the prayer list because they had prayed themselves into unbelief. David knew how to pray, and David is in warfare. His son Absalom has taken over and rebelled against his father and has an army bigger than David's at this point. And so David in Psalm 3 goes to God, and this is how a warrior prays. A warrior does not look for relief. A warrior looks for the resources to complete his assignment. Let's, let's read this together. It's Psalm 3. It's here in your, in your bulletin, or it's up on the screen. I like it when you read God's word out loud, so let's read together. O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God, Selah. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord. 
And he answered me from his holy hill, Selah. I lay down and slept. I awoke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek, you break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord, your blessing beyond people. So we talked, when we talked about the armor of God, we talked about the shield of faith. And David, right in the midst of his prayer, David cries out that the Lord is his shield. Just as Paul talks about that you have to lift up your shield of faith in order to extinguish the flaming darts of the enemy. The shield was an essential part of the armor. In some ways, in the ancient world, without the shield, you were far worse off than if you had lost your sword. The shield was often uh, some big thing, not like in jousting where you had sort of a mobile shield. You had more of a stationary type shield, four feet high, two feet wide. It was uh, often wrapped in leather or different things. It was soaked in water so that when the flames came, the shield could extinguish those flames. But the, the idea of the shield really is about your faith. It is about you exercising faith. It is about you rising up in terms of your prayer life and beginning to speak out your faith, beginning to say verbally what you really believe, what you profess, what you confess, what you announce, what you declare. The Bible says without faith it's impossible to please God. The Bible says in many ways it's saying that when you pray and there's no faith in your prayer, you're not really praying. You're not really, you're not able to expect anything from God because when you don't have faith, you're double-minded. And the double-minded person is unstable in all their ways and can expect nothing from God. Faith is the essence of the authority. When you walk in faith, you exercise your authority. I had a precious missionary lady come to me and say, for 20 years I prayed in the country I was assigned to and I never saw an answer. And I looked at her and I said, were the things you were praying, were they the will of God? Were they the promises of God? She said, yes. Then I said, why didn't you walk in them? Why didn't you activate and move into what you had prayed? She said, I was waiting on God. And I said, God was waiting on you. Because His Word is true. You kept waiting for magic. Instead of exercising your faith and walking in your authority. There are things that you have not, friends, because you ask not. There are things that you have not because you believe not. Listen. The essence of faith has three levels to it, three aspects to it. First is you can't have faith in something you don't know. You have to have knowledge. You have to have recognition. It's why it's so important that you're faithful people to come to worship services, to listen to preaching, to read your word, to spend time with the word of God, because the more knowledge you have, then you will know what is at your resources and tools. All of these things, the Bible says, they belong to His children. They're in the refrigerator waiting for you. But you have to open the door. 
You have to walk in. You have to take them. You have to believe that he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Faith says it is so even when it's not so until it is so because God said so. This is your role. This is, this is the one time in your existence that you give to give God the gift of faith, but you have to know what it is to have faith in. What are the certainties? And then you move from knowledge, you move to assent or agreement that you begin to say, okay, this is what the Bible says. I agree with this. I affirm this. I assent to this. We say this with me. I agree to this. For some of you, that was really hard because you don't like to agree with anybody. <laughs> but you see, knowledge is, is worthless if you don't then line your intellect up to it. If you don't begin to say, I assent to this. But also, it's really still not proven until you trust it, until you act upon it. Until you depend upon it. Faith has this deeper level. In many ways, there are people who they say, I assent to the Bible. I agree with the Bible. I've heard people say, I agree from cover to cover. And I say, have you read it? No, I never got past about Exodus or, or so. <laughs> You're like, then how do you know you agree with it? Then how can you depend on it if you don't know it? And so your prayer begins to be an expression of what you know, what you agree with, and what you count on, what you trust. And that's when prayer begins to take a deep, deep turn in your life. Because prayer is the way that we begin to resist the devil. And it's the way that we find protection from his attacks. Now here, here's the way that Satan accuses. Now listen, listen closely. The vo- there will be a voice. It could be your own voice in your head. A, a thought that comes and says, you're just weak. Okay, what do you do when you hear that? I say agree with it. Because you are weak. Why fight it? Because it's not your strength that matters. The problem is sometimes, no, I'm strong. No, just agree. I'm weak. I'm weak, but he is strong. You see, that's not, I'm not depending on my strengths. So I don't need to argue with him. I just need to take my stand that the record isn't mine, it's Jesus' record. If he says to me, you're ignorant, I go, yeah, you're right, amen, you're right. But I am connected to the wisdom of the Lord. As a matter of fact, because I'm in Christ, I have the mind of Christ. I'm not wise, but he is. You see what happens when you do that? You're staying humble, but yet you're starting to stand up in confidence. Because it's not your confidence. See, and even if Satan says to you, you don't know how to pray, you go, you're right. The Bible says that. None of us know how to pray as we ought, Romans 8 says. But you know what? You know what? That triggers in you or me is the realization right now, the one who knows how to pray right now is interceding for you at the right hand of God. And, and Satan is scared to death of those prayers. And then right inside of you in the very innermost part of your being is the Spirit of Christ wrestling with your spirit, 
probing your deepest desires, the ones you don't even have words for, and he's, he's able to express them with expressions too deep for words. So when the enemy comes and says, you don't, you don't even have a prayer life, you're like, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I got Jesus praying for me. I got the Holy Spirit praying for me. All right, there's, even if I don't join in, there's a prayer life going on for me. I get excited about that because I begin to realize I don't have to create a prayer life. I don't have to suddenly follow somebody else's prayer life. All I need to do is quiet myself enough to hear what's going on in the spiritual realm for me because I spend way too much hearing the spiritual realm against me. It's time to start hearing the spiritual realm that's praying and pulling for me. And then I'll join my prayers with that. Guess what? I don't think the Father says no to Jesus ever. I don't think the Father says no to the Spirit ever. You align your prayers to the Spirit's prayers, to the intercessor Son of God prayers, all of a sudden you have a prayer life that is unmatched. Because... It isn't about being a superstar. It's about joining the superstars. Amen? Amen. So, what we're saying here is that spiritual attacks in this life are, are inevitable. But spiritual failure is not inevitable. Because there's a prayer life, there's a shield, there's, there's faith which protects in a way like nothing else. When Satan whispers to you, God may have cared about you once before, but long ago, and now his interest in you is long gone, you lift up that shield of faith and you say, wait a minute, that's impossible. God does not change. His concern for me is eternal. What he has promised me, he will fulfill. Or if Satan comes and says, you know what? God doesn't love you anymore. You've failed so many times. You are... You are, have so many secrets. You have so much shame in your life. There's no way that God is going to forgive you one more time and love you again. And you look at him and you lift up that shield of faith and you say, that is impossible. God's love for me cannot exist. It, it cannot cease to exist. God's love for me was demonstrated when I was a sinner. When I was a sinner, Christ died for me, the just for the unjust, and that has never changed. You begin to realize that what faith is all about is stating the certainties in the midst of your uncertainties. <laughs> stating your certainties in the midst of your uncertainties. See, I'm going to believe God is what faith says, and I'm going to trust Him. And what happens is eventually you will have a portfolio of faith. And that will become unwavering trust. Trust is earned, friends. Trust is out of experience. You begin to trust something because you've known it in the past, and it works. And so the deeper your trust is, the deeper your encounters with God have been through prayer. Now, what I want to, to look at with you is how David used these truths to overcome the biggest challenge in his life. Now, what took place in David's life is he had to overcome 
the stronghold of fear and fear specifically that manifested as anxiety. So what we're talking about when we're talking about overcoming is we're talking about really not temporary concerns. We're not talking about things that come up in your life and challenge you, but we're really talking about those deeper fears that linger, that result in a stronghold. Now, I want to define for you for a minute what a stronghold is. A stronghold is a place in your very being that becomes impregnated with hopelessness. That you begin to say, this will never change. This will never get better. See, in that area, what you basically are in those strongholds is you're dead to God, but alive to Satan. And so those strongholds are held together by lies, but they're protected by a demonic presence. And the most common demonic presence in the church is a spirit of fear. Now, even though the scriptures have said to us, I have not given you a spirit of fear, we mostly play with a spirit of fear. And it manifests in anxiety, anger, fear, worry, all manner of negative emotions and can easily get you to a place of hopelessness, to where you're under a stronghold of depression even. And the goal of it is to get you to suicide, to get you either to end your life or to end your ministry or sabotage yourself in some way that disqualifies or destroys you. So it's interesting because actually since the 1950s, this has been called the age of anxiety that there are more anxious disorders now being diagnosed than have ever been in history. And so we are dealing with having to overcome not only a personal stronghold, but a societal stronghold in which we, we all breathe the air of it. Now, why, why is this so important? Well, f- let's just start with this. Jesus said over and over again, do not be anxious. I mean, in his Sermon of Sermons, he said it again and again. So there is some very debilitating nature of anxiety. So instead of being able to face your challenges, you are drained of power. As a matter of fact, the Bible uses the word chokes. That worry chokes the life out of you. That instead of empowering you, it disables you. And so instead of strengthening you for the challenge, it actually takes away your strength in the challenge. So in Psalm 3, we see this fear. There are two levels of fear that are expressed in Psalm 3. The first fear is very real. He says he has 10,000 enemies trying to take his life. Now, one would be enough to make you afraid. One assassin. But David says he has thousands. He has thousands. You see, what what has happened is David has created a situation by bad parenting. He had a son. His name was Absalom. He never said no to Absalom. As a matter of fact, when Absalom killed one of David's other sons, David didn't even allow punishment to come against him. That's how indulged and spoiled he was. But Absalom also was beautiful. He was popular. His haircutting once a year was a national event. Everybody wanted to be friends with Absalom. He was 
the it guy of the day. He had a chariot with 50 horses. For those of us old guys, it would be like having a Trans Am in 1974, something like that, you know, a muscle car. And he would ride around the city and all the people would just, would just gawk and say, oh boy, that guy is cool. Now, he said it in Hebrew, and I don't know what the Hebrew word for cool is, but, uh, but uh, they were so, he was so popular, and he began to use it. You see, he wasn't in line to be king. One of the other sons was in line to be king. Absalom wasn't in line to be king. So he went to the city gates where people were waiting to have their cases adjudicated by David, because the king used to be the judge as well, and so he would see this long line of people waiting for justice, and he would go up to them. Here he is, this handsome, popular guy. He would say, if only I were king, I would make sure that your, your, your judgment would be quick. I would make sure that you were taken care of. And so eventually people began to say, man, it'd be so much better if he were king. But the only way he could be king is if he took it by force. And the only way he could be king is if he kills his father. And so this psalm is written, and there is a legitimate fear, friends, because Absalom cannot be king if David is still alive. Now, there's a second layer of level of fear that's in this text. And it's, it's in verse 2, and it's actually the deeper level of fear. Because what David says is basically now, the people are saying that God will not deliver me. See, the first is there's something very real. There's an army coming against him. The second one is now his identity is being attacked. His calling is being attacked. You, you know who David is, right? His character. I mean, he, he was called a man after God's own heart. He was a shepherd who, as a boy, stood up to the lion and the bear. He was a warrior who, as an 18-year-old teenager, stood up to Goliath and won the battle. He was a father of many. He was the king who united the tribes, these difficult 12 tribes, into one powerful nation called Israel. And now he's feeling, though he has this legacy and he has this past and he has all these accolades. As a matter of fact, he was the most popular king ever. And now it's all gone. And the people who once praised him are now saying, even God will not deliver him. You understand, really and truly, he is faced with the deepest fears, just like you and me. He has the issue that there are physical things that seem to want to harm us. But there are also those things that try to take away your identity and your security and your confidence. But David says something about how he dealt with it. And he deals with it in prayer. And his prayers are able, he says, to allow him to sleep at night. While he's being chased by 10,000, he sleeps well. And while he is faced with losing everything he has worked for, it says he will not be afraid. Now, if you've ever suffered from anxiety, what's one of the first things that goes? Sleep. And what happens when you can't sleep? You become a worse version of yourself. You become weakened. You become, you know, moody and emotional. 
and you can't even handle the day-to-day things when you can't sleep. So doesn't it seem like, if you'll listen carefully today, that this might be worth something to you? Better than Ambien? With no side effects? You know, and no dangers, potential dangers of addicting or hooking you or whatever it might be? He says he's able to sleep. He's able to live without fear when most of us would have been paralyzed by what happened. So let's look at this a little bit more deeply. In the middle of the last century, um, social scientists began to call the age we live in the age of anxiety. One of the leaders of the movement was a man by the name of Rollo May. And he explained it this way, that there were these two levels of fear. One he called fear, the other he called anxiety. The Bible doesn't distinguish between these. It calls them all fear. And so May had this illustration that I thought was helpful. He says, if you're crossing the street and all of a sudden a car, a speeding car begins to come right at you, what happens? Well, your heart starts to race, right? Your adrenaline starts to get up. And suddenly you become an Olympic sprinter, Usain Bolt in the flesh. You know, you start to run and you get out of the way. And he says, that is healthy fear because it was for your good. There was a danger, a physical danger of harm. And your body rose up and your body began to save you. Have you ever had that happen? I've had it happen. I remember once I was in Costa Rica. We were walking along the beach and Anna was two years old. I was holding her hand. She was close to the ocean. This wave came like a riptide type thing and pulled her out of my hand and took her out into the middle of the ocean. She didn't have floaties on or anything. And she just was swept out. All of a sudden, I became David Hasselhoff. (laughs) I I swam out there. I, I saved my daughter, brought her back to shore. And you don't even think about it. It happened like that. You know, now I swim like a rock, but, uh, <laughs> but it was amazing. All of a sudden, this, the danger to my daughter created in me like superhuman powers, it felt like, in a moment. That's God-given. That's a healthy fear. But, he says, if after you've had that experience, you have a lingering feeling of hollowness and fragility and feelings of vulnerability, and it stays with you, and you can't get over it. The fear lingers, the anxiety, the dread, the sense of, I'm not safe. He calls that an unhealthy fear or anxiety. See, in a sense, the healthy is very specific. It's constructive. It's a catalyst for action. But anxiety, and these are, social, these are secular scientists making this distinction, the, the, the unhealthy, non-specific is paralyzing and it makes you unable to act. Do you understand why the Bible says be anxious for nothing? It doesn't just say it's unhealthy, friends. It says it's sin. Because it's so destructive to you when you meet the challenges of your life. And what you have to understand is at the deepest level, anxiety is an attack on your identity. It's something you have based your worth on. It's something you've said, this is my value. Something you have counted on, but now is in doubt or has already failed you. Anxiety is based on something where your security is now gone. 
So David says that he's got both these attacks coming after him. Physical harm and identity destruction. And Dr. May says, if you are facing both of these at the same time, he says you sink. So what our secular scientists, sociologists, and psychiatrists say, if you have both of these, if you have the fear of physical harm and you have the fear of identity and security harm, it says you will not last, you will not survive. And yet David, because of his prayers and his faith, was able to overcome both. Notice something here. This is not the psalm of Absalom. Come on, that was really a good one. I only got two of you. Do you get what I'm saying? So in other words, this worked. And has worked for centuries and millennium. Millennia. So why does it work? Well, let's start with this. If, you're, if you grew up religious and you were trained religious, you were trained to deny your emotions. You were trained to deny what you feel. Like, I, I have people come to me, sometimes they say, I really know a Christian shouldn't be mad, but... I'm like, let's be mad. You're mad. Let's not, let's not fake it. I know a Christian shouldn't be worried, but... I'm like, come on, you're worried. Let's be honest. In other words, the Psalms are emotionally raw and intellectually very, very honest. If you grew up religious, you're neither. You're emotionally dishonest and intellectually denying reality of the pain in your life. You will never get freedom. You will never get healing if you can't get honest. But if you grew up outside of religion, then you grew up just vomiting your emotions everywhere. You know, you go on Mari Povich or, uh, you know, uh, whatever show and you tell all your nonsense, you know. Or you're on Facebook telling all of us your stuff and all that kind of stuff. So what we find is that people nowadays don't get anywhere, but they vent everywhere. If you don't believe me, just go to the supermarket. Stand in line and make a negative comment. Everybody will start talking with you. Can you believe how long these cashiers are taking? Can you believe the prices at this store? Can you believe they don't have... And everybody's just joining in with you, venting, and nobody's getting anywhere. Well, the psalmist doesn't do either of those. The psalmist prays his emotions. Do you understand? The only one who can handle your emotions isn't any of us in this room, though we will listen to you and we will love you even if you are a jerk. But we can't help you. There's only one who can help you. You see, the problem with anxiety or the reality of anxiety is this. Anxiety is based on outcomes. It's based on results that you have no right or no power to control. But you want it so badly or you feel you need it so badly that you can't just let it go. So David is faced when he's praying with an outcome he has no control of. He doesn't know if he's going to lose his life. He knows 10,000 people are set against him. He knows that they're saying that he has no identity left. He knows that, but he doesn't know what the outcome will be. So when he goes to God, he goes to God in faith, not in anxiety. He doesn't go paralyzed. 
he goes expressing all of his emotions, all of his heart. And he's so raw, as a matter of fact, when he does end up praying, he doesn't pray, he doesn't really ask for anything till the end where he says, you know, defeat my enemy, save me, arise, defeat my enemies. And then I love that part, he says, you will break their teeth. <laughs> you know, that's, I, that's biblical, friends. I mean, I, I, you can pray that, I guess, you know, break their teeth. I like that. But it's so honest, right? You know, you want their power broken. You want their bite taken away. He's very honest. God gets to say no, but you get to say what you really think. Here's the thing. Once you hear what you're praying, sometimes you go, God, I, I just scratched that right now. I just, uh, that, was, that was really stupid. I don't want that. Help me learn how to pray, actually, because I seem to pray the wrong things. You know, he can say no, and getting it out into the open helps you to understand: Is this really what I want? While it's inside, it festers. Okay, so are you hear, hearing me so far? All right. So David overcomes in the warfare before the warfare is ever won. He overcomes in his prayer. And, and what we see is he takes a threefold approach, which all express his faith. First thing he says is, you are a shield about me. Now, say that with me, okay? Say it with me. You are a shield about me. Now, there's two things I want you to notice. And, and this is where I want you to change your prayer. He didn't say, please be a shield. Many of you, when you pray, you begin with unbelief. You're asking him to be what he already is. So would you say it again with me? You are a shield about me. Now the other thing is, notice it doesn't say you're a shield in front of me, or beside me, or behind me. It says you're a shield about me. Now, in, in the text, what it really means to say is it's the kind of shield that only comes out when you're trying to take a fortress. It's the kind of shield when you're advancing and your captain has brought you to a spot that is dangerous. You see, the fact that you need a shield says there's going to be danger. If you didn't need a shield, there would be no danger. So when you start off your prayer saying, Oh God, if you love me, you won't let this happen to me. You're not understanding. You're advancing against the enemy. You are taking strongholds. Your captain is leading you right into the, the defeat of sin and the defeat of death and taking you right through it to the other side. And he is storming the castle with you. But you are only shielded as you follow. Because really and truly, He's the shield. And so when you're obedient, and you're doing what He's commanded, and you're doing what He's asked you to do, then He is a shield about you. But the problem for many of us is we think that means there'll be no danger. Friends, He's leading you right into danger. Because His kingdom is advancing against the kingdom of of Satan. But he is a shield about you. Now, the second thing that David says is he says, you're my glory. 
And, and in the literal translation, it says, but you are my glory. So in other words, what he's saying there is other things have been my glory. Remember what I said? He was that faithful shepherd boy. He was that awesome warrior. He was a father. He was a husband. He was a king. He was all these things. Those had been his glory, but now all of those are lost. And he's saying, but you, Lord, are my glory. In other words, what he's saying is I can lose all of those other temporary things, but I have not lost what is ultimate to me. In order to overcome, you have to have something that's bigger than what you're trying to overcome. You can get rid of anger pretty easily. You can decide, I'm not going to be angry, but you can't get rid of fear that easily. You can only get rid of fear if you have something bigger and more powerful than what you're afraid of. And what he's saying is, the glory of God is my treasure. The glory of God is ultimate to me. I am not going to hold on to that popular shepherd boy. I'm not holding on to the mighty warrior. I'm not holding on to being a father or a husband. I'm not holding on to the fact that I was king. I am holding on right now that you are my glory and nothing can take that away from me. You understand, he's, at, he's saying all of this before he ever asked for salvation. And then it says, you're the lifter of my head. Now, come on. I know sometimes we read the Psalms and we don't think through. You should be saying right now, how in the world can God lift this guy's head? Do you not know his story? He got lazy as a king. He stopped going to battle. He stayed at home, his prerogative as a king. And one day he just happens to be on the rooftop and he sees a beautiful woman. And since he's king, and it's good to be king, he says, I'll have her. Now, she was another man's wife. And so he has her. She gets pregnant. Guess who the man is? The man is one of his mighty men. Do you know anything about that? These are the ones who stuck with David when he was in exile, when Saul was chasing him, when there were so many lined against him. And here's Uriah the Hittite, and he's been at David's side, and David has stolen his wife, and then he tries to fool Uriah into you know, sleeping with his wife so that the child could look like it was the fa- you know, he was the father, and that didn't work. Then he sends his mighty man who was with him in thick and thin, and he kills him. How can, the, how can God lift this guy's head? What happens when your head's not lifted? It's you're ashamed. What happens when your head's not lifted? It's you're guilty. And yet here David is saying, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, you're the lifter of my head. What does he mean by that? He means that he is trusting in the promise of a Savior. He is trusting in the promise of a sacrifice. He's trusting in the promise of a substitute. He's looking forward to his own son, Jesus, to be his Savior. Now, if he can lift David's head, how is it that your head is not lifted? Because he looked to the promise, you look back on the fulfillment. 
Have you ever thought of this? God kept the most difficult promise he ever made. He gave his only son, so whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. If he kept the hardest promise, how easy are the others? Every promise of God is yes and amen. Now, if that's not enough to lift up your head, then the Bible says to us that we have these three weapons that I, I want to give to you before Gabe gets too loud over there. <laughs> the first one is this. You have been given the authority and the privilege and the right, friend, to use the name of Jesus. The name of Jesus connects you to the very power source of God. When you speak in His name, you're no longer speaking in your name. And those things that you speak out in His name, they become very, very real and very, very uh, even immediate many times. Because you are not just saying, I, I hope this happens, I want this to happen. You are saying, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you do that, your prayer life takes a whole new level. You're not just begging and saying, I wish this would happen. I'm hoping. I'm sending up arrows into the air. You're beginning to know his word. You're beginning to know how to use his word. And then you use his name. See, many of you need to realize that some of the things that you have prayed, anointing is on. When you begin to get faster heartbeat, when you begin to get a sense of something deeper and deeper, don't go, oh God, please. Instead say, I feel your presence. I'm going to declare this. I'm going to profess this. I'm going to pro proclaim this. And you begin to step out into faith. And even those things that are not will be because of that, because of his name. The other thing that he gives to us to lift our head is he's, he has given us his blood. The blood of Jesus. Lisa wrote some things about this I just want to share with you very quickly. The blood of the Lord Jesus Christ gives us the power to stand against the schemes of the enemy. It's one of the most powerful tools in our prayer arsenal. A lot of people don't like to talk about the blood with modern people. I, I'm sick and tired of appeasing some sensibility that really is useless to us. Look, it's the blood that where the power comes from. Listen to me. The blood of Jesus is the reason I am forgiven of my sins. Because of the blood of Jesus, I'm not just forgiven, but I have been cleansed of my sins. You understand? If, if he's going to lift up your head, he's lifting it because he's forgiven you. He lifts it up because you're cleansed. Because it's no longer against you. That's an amazing thing. The enemy wants to tell you you're unclean, but the blood says you're cleansed. The blood of Jesus, I am justified. I am in right standing with God, and I am spared from any wrath or judgment to come. In the blood of Jesus, I am spiritually alive. In the blood of Jesus, I can come close to God. The scriptures in Hebrews says that we can draw near to the very throne of grace. And find help in times of trouble. And it doesn't say we come just sneaking up on it. It says to come boldly to the throne of grace. The picture there, the horns of the altar, where even a fugitive could flee to the horns of the altar. And because of the blood that was sprinkled there, the blood would cover the fugitive's sins. And mercy would be found and grace would be found. 
that was the insufficient blood of bulls and goats and lambs. You are sprinkled in your conscience with the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you begin to claim the blood, the enemy who might have hooks in you has no hooks in that blood. I can't tell you the number of times I learned this some years ago by a powerful older intercessor, but I, I've been in counseling sessions and the counselee was getting lost and we were getting nowhere. And I was doing my best and, and, and I remembered this intercessor's wise words, plead the blood sing songs of the blood. So we would say, What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. So it would immediately clear. Because the devil flees. He flees. But not only is he the lifter of my head because of his name and because of his blood, but he's the lifter of my head because he's given me the authority to bind and to loose. I loved how Lisa said this last night. She goes, you know, the stories that many of us tell is how a policeman can stop a truck just with their hand. I was in the city the other day. They had gloves on their hands, these white gloves, and they were stopping these trucks. But spiritual authority takes it another step, really. And you go and you realize Satan's been driving that truck. And so you take out your handcuffs and you bind that thief. And actually, he's driving your truck. And in the back of that truck are all the things you've been praying for and all the things that are your heritage. And now, bound, you go and you plunder that truck and you take back what the enemy stole from you. See, that's how he's a lifter of our head. Can you hear me today? Let's stand together. I've got something for you. We want to activate these prayers, warfare prayers today. Here's what, I, here's what we have. These are four stakes, like each family to have one, each individual that's, uh, you know, whether you're living on your own or a group of roommates, whatever it might be, we'd like each of you to have uh, one of these per family or per unit or whatever we're going to call it. What this is, is... A declaration, um, a prophetic act of taking back the ground. Here's how, Satan, here's how Satan works. He comes into a territory like Rockland County, Orange County, Northern New Jersey, wherever you might be from, and he takes spots, he takes points on the map. He gets a drug den here or a strip joint or some kind of illicit activity here or there. And he takes those points and he draws lines to them until he has a whole plane of darkness. And he tries to take over a whole county or a whole region and just have a canopy of darkness over that whole county. The area still belongs to the Lord. Psalm says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. But the activity that God has called you to is to pierce the darkness. And if you will decree your house, your apartment, your business, your school, whatever it is, you'll decree that this is a house of prayer for all nations. That this is a point of light. Not only will we see pokes through the darkness, 
we'll see an open heaven over our county and over our cities and over our whole area. God is a God of blessing. He wants to bring His blessing where the enemy is cursed. He wants to restore what the locusts have eaten. He wants to turn the deserts into rivers and the dry places into creeks once again. So what I'm going to ask of you is that you would go to the four corners of your property. You would take one of these wooden stakes and you would just nail it into the ground. And the instructions of how to pray it are right here on the paper. We're just taking God seriously where He said, if if we will humble ourselves and pray... That he'll hear and turn from our wicked ways. He'll hear from heaven and he'll heal our land. And Lisa and her team have written on here a verse for your, your territory, for your area. And it is, this land is married to the Lord. We did this about 10 years ago and God did some amazing things. We believe he's called us to renew covenant with him for our territory again. So even if you've done it before, your lawnmower probably rolled over this thing a few times. Even if you've done it before, just like they did in the Old Testament, they would renew their covenant with the Lord. I'm going to ask you to do that again. And I believe that major things will happen. Now, if you find increased cursing instead of blessing, all it means is we got a battle to win. So please let us know about the battles. And let us know about the victories, too. We can't follow you up on this. If you don't do it, it's fine. But I believe if you're willing to do it, it's an activation of your faith and your authority. And it's, a, it's setting the enemy at alert that we are not passive anymore. I want to pray over this, and then we'll go. Ready? Lord, we consecrate these ordinary pieces of wood, but you have used these kind of things before. You are a God who loves the boundary lines. And you're a God who says, protect the boundary lines. And so we come, Lord, to decree and to declare that the earth is the Lord's. To declare that this is blood-bought land. And the blood isn't our blood. It's the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we ask even now, in the name and the authority of Lord Jesus, for an open heaven over every home, every apartment, every business, every school that is represented here, that we would see a piercing of the darkness like never before in the name and the victory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. God bless you.